Okay, so I want to welcome everyone for coming uh, today. Uh, you know, some of us, at least once a year, say next year in Jerusalem. Today, through the presence of Ambassador Diane, we have a little bit of Jerusalem and Israel with us at the Bar Association. So this, and we're delighted to welcome Ambassador Diane. This public affairs luncheon program is one of the signature events of the Senior Lawyers Committee. This is our last event in this cycle, and we are putting together a really star-studded cycle for starting next September. So look in your calendar, say in September, we're going to make sure to come to the Senior Lawyers Committee. One of our other signature events is what we call the May Gala. And that's going to take place on May 23rd here at the Bar Association at 6 p.m. Ed Holtzman, who is chair of the subcommittee of for the May Gala has put together a fantastic panel of speakers to talk about lawyers in transition, a look ahead. So after you've, you've practiced for 30 years, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you really want to think about what you're going to do when you grow up and what's, and what's your passion and how you want to uh, realize that passion. So the senior Lawyers Committee is unique because the people in the Senior Lawyers Committee are not focused on one particular issue. We have done any number of practice areas in the law. So we're open to doing other things, to realizing your passion. And one of the innovative initiatives that we've taken this year is to start a program with Pace Law School to initiate a mentor program. Uh, so if, you're, if you want to do something that's exciting, that's innovative, contact us. And uh, I think that uh, we gave out uh, a contact sheet. You can reach out to, uh, to me, to the, to the Bar Association. Our next committee meeting is April 25th, so feel free to uh, consider coming to that event. So now I'd like to ask the chair of the Public Affairs Luncheon Committee, Frank Wagner, to introduce our featured speaker, Ambassador Diane. Uh, Ambassador uh, Danny Diane uh, represents the state of Israel to uh, communities throughout New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Delaware. He was appointed Consul General in August 2016. Uh, born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, he's the first Hispanic Consul General of Israel in New York. He is uh, fluent in Hebrew, English, and Spanish. Ambassador Diane founded an information technology company in 1982 at the age of 26, serving as its CEO and later as chairman of the board. In 2005, 
when he sold his interest in the firm and employed 500 IT professionals. Before establishing his company, Ambassador Diane spent seven and a half years in the Israeli Defense Force, serving in its central uh, computing system unit, attaining the rank of major. He served as chairman of the Council of Jewish Communities in Judea and Samara, uh, known as the Yesha Council from July 2007 to January 2013. In that role, he represented 400,000 residents of the West Bank and sought to expand the Jewish community in the West Bank. He later became the chief foreign envoy of the council and conducted regular meetings with foreign diplomats and journalists to advance those causes. Ambassador Diane is a regular commentator in the international press and has contributed uh, to the New York Times, the Boston Globe, The Guardian, CNN, BC, BBC, Al Jazeera, and many more. Finally, uh, in researching uh, this introduction uh, this afternoon, I found two intriguing headlines describing Ambassador Diane that I'd like to share with you. One from the New York Times, which read, which uh, characterized him as a settler, leader, worldly, and pragmatic. And from a leading Israeli newspaper, characterizing him as the settler leader who is even charming liberals in Israel as Israel's top man in New York. So please join me in welcoming Ambassador Danny Diane. Actually, you know, uh, when I arrived here, I was interviewed by the New York Times. And also the New York Times, some, 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 for some reason, called me charming, which I can assure you it's fake news. <laughs> um, my friends, uh, thank you, first of all, for having me here. It's a great privilege for me, a great honor. Um, tomorrow, tomorrow evening, according to the Jewish tradition, that the day starts when the sun sets. Um, we will start celebrating uh, our seventh independence anniversary. But we have uh, an additional tradition that I think is unique. Uh, one day before Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Independence Day, the 24 hours before Independence Day, starting in Israel actually 15 minutes from now, 8 p.m. in Israel, we start 24 hours of remembering uh, our fallen soldiers, uh, tens of thousands of Israelis that gave their life in order to maintain that independence. In 15 minutes from now at exactly 8 p.m. in Israel, a siren will sound all across the country for two minutes. Every Israeli will leave uh, whatever he's doing. If he's driving a car, he will stop the car in the middle of the road and we will get out of his car and stand still for two minutes remembering the fallen soldiers that uh, gave their lives to guarantee our independence. Uh, we do that twice a year. We did it uh, to remember uh, the six million victims of the Holocaust and we will do it today again to remember our fallen soldiers. 
And uh, I did not intend to mention that, but there was a demand from this beautiful lady in, the, in my table that held me a few days ago in another event, and she demanded I repeat something that I said in that uh, Holocaust Remembrance Evening event. I said, uh, I told the story of my family, which is a very particular, a very personal story, but uh, is every, anything but personal, but particular. My father, my late father, his name, by the way, was Moshe Dayan, and he was a distant relative, a second-degree cousin of the more famous Moshe Dayan. My father crossed for the first time in his life an international border inside a potato sack. The year was 1921. Uh, my dad was uh, six months old. And the border was the border separating between Ukraine and Poland, his native Ukraine and Poland. And the reason that he was inside the the reason they crossed the border was they had to flee the the pogroms, the massacres against the Jewish population of Ukraine those days by Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, we tend to forget that 50,000 Jews were massacred by the by tags uh, during those days. We tend to forget it because later obviously came a much greater calamity, the Holocaust, with six million massacred Jews. And uh, they, they decided that they have to flee the Ukraine to the relative, uh, very relative safety of Poland. And uh, the problem was that they had, to do, they had to cross the border completely silently. Uh, they, went, they waited for a moonless night, for a dark night, but the problem is that there was a six-month-old baby with them that can cry. And if they are discovered by the gendarme, gendarmerie either side of the border, uh, who knows what the, the fate of the whole group will be. So my grandma put uh, my father in a, inside a potato sack and she muffled his mouth with a cloth uh, to prevent him from crying, for making any sounds. And when they arrived to the Polish side of the border, she opened the sack to see if he's alive or who was asphyxiated. Um, they, later they were for seven years what we would call today undocumented immigrants in Poland until they immigrated to Argentina and finally to the final destination, the state of Israel. Um, and I said uh, in that event uh, that uh, I thought about the story of my father while I was uh, my aircraft that brought me to cross the virtual border between the United States and Israel in August 16 when I came here to serve as Consul General of Israel. I thought about it while I was, we were descending towards JFK in an aircraft with a Hebrew-speaking crew with a Start of David, the blue start of David in the tail of the aircraft. And I was bearing a diplomatic passport, uh, bearing in its uh, cover uh, the emblem of the State of Israel, the menorah with two olive branches, 
with the olive branches and the word Israel in Hebrew. And I knew that uh, also in JFK uh, there are policemen to expecting me, but I knew that they are uh, expecting me to escort me and to give me even some kind of uh, honor. And uh, I couldn't fail to think about the revolutionary change that my people underwent in those uh, 90-something years. And uh, there is nothing we personally do to make that change. It's nothing to do with specifically with my family. It has to do with only one thing, with the fact that uh, in 1948 the Jewish independent state was established. And since then, no Jew needs to cross a border inside the potato sack again. And that's what uh, I cannot fail but think also this day when, I, when we are approaching our 70th anniversary. And Barry said that uh, we are going to taste uh, some uh, taste of Jerusalem here today. And indeed, uh, one additional thought that I had when I was descending towards JFK is what uh, great honor is to represent uh, the capital of the world, Jerusalem, to the city that for some reason believes that is the capital of the world, New York. <laughs> um, we enter our, uh, eighth, uh, our eighth decade of existence, of renewed existence, because Israel is 3,000 years old, that it is 70 years young. We enter uh, our eighth decade of existence with great optimism. And I also must say uh, with great pride of our achievements. You know, if you look uh, at, you take a still photograph of Israel as it is today, there are innumerable reasons to be proud. Uh, I will enumerate a few of them in a minute. If you take two pictures, a picture of Israel in 1948 and a picture of Israel in 2018, then it's not only pride, but it's astonishment of where we started and where we are today. Just to give you an idea, we started with 600,000 Jews that in, three, in, in 18 months welcomed and absorbed and integrated into society an additional one million Jews refugees from Eastern Europe and from Arab countries. Uh, those days, you know, uh, a rich Israeli was an Israeli that had an uncle in New Jersey that would send him tuna cans and uh, maybe second-hand coats. Um, today we have the GDP per capita of Japan. Um, and if we look uh, in a third way, uh, we look as it, it, at it not as a one still picture or two still picture, but as a 2,000 years movie, starting in the year 70, when we were exiled from our homeland and dispersed and wandered and mass were massacred and oppressed and discriminated uh, 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 and ultimately genocided. Uh, that is even more astonishing. I want to share with you uh, 
two sources of pride and one uh, challenge. Israel today is uh, mightier than ever, militarily mightier than ever. But I don't think that's a source of pride. That's a necessity. That's a necessity that our neighborhood, our tough neighborhood created. I don't think that's, uh, I always say, and I believe in that family, even when we have one of the mightiest military in the world, and one of the most stable military in the world, we never ever will, be, will exchange the values of Jerusalem for the values of Sparta. Um, so I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk uh, briefly about two other achievements. The first Israel was never, Israel's economy was never stronger than today. Um, I said that we had, uh, if we just compare Israel of today to Israel of 30 years ago, 30 years, not so long, uh, not a period so long. 30 years ago we had a GDP, a GDP per capita of around $8,000, which put us, you know, uh, at the forefront of the third world. Today we have $40,000 that is, we surpassed already countries like Spain and Italy and we are a par with Japan. Um, I will give you a thing, it's not going to be, although my, my academic field of studies is economy and finance, it's not going to be a, a financial presentation. But I will give you a few vignettes, a few personal vignettes to, to give you an idea how, how Israel was revolutionized in the last decades. I remember, as you heard, that I wasn't born in Israel. I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I don't know how many of you have been to Buenos Aires. But Buenos Aires is a really an amazing city, a bustling city, at least it was, uh, if the Argentinians didn't ruin it, uh, <laughs> as they usually tend to do with many things. Um, I hope there is no Argentinian diplomat here that will <laughs> report to Buenos Aires and cry, create a diplomatic crisis. Um, uh, Buenos Aires was a bustling 24-7 city. Uh, Argentinians used to go to dinner outside in a restaurant at 10 p.m. and then dance the whole night. Uh, and my folks told me, look, we are going to live in a, another big city in Tel Aviv. And here I arrived, we arrived to Tel Aviv, and in Tel Aviv, those days, just to give you an idea, there was one and only television channel, black and white, owned by the government. The broadcast started at 7.30 p.m., and at exactly 10 p.m., there was a weird clock, a black and white clock that ticked for exactly 30 seconds. And 10.02, the broadcast ended. 10.01, all the lights in Tel Aviv went off. 10.02, all Tel Aviv was sleeping. And I said, well, this is not exactly what the, the idea that I have of a big city. Today, you come to Tel Aviv and... I mean, it's, it's comparable only to, to New York or really the big cities of the world. The cranes everywhere, activity everywhere. An amazing, incredible cultural scene. Uh, the best shopping you can imagine. Uh, unfortunately, an amazing gastronomic scene that left marks in my body. Uh, and 
really 24-7. And then uh, a few years after we arrived, it was 19, we arrived in 1971, came, uh, was the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War and following the Yom Kippur War in which we were attacked by the armies of Egypt and Syria, the world economic crisis, the oil embargo, and uh, I remember vividly the headline in Yediot Achronot, which is the, was then the most widely circulated newspaper in Israel, saying we, Israel, has foreign exchange reserves that are enough for two to three months of imports. And since we, every month we import more than we export, losing dollars, spending more dollars than we receive, in two, three months, we now have dollars to buy in the markets, coffee, sugar, cars, oil, anything, unless we get uh, emergency loans. Today, Israel has foreign exchange reserves. The Bank of Israel, the equivalent to your Fed, has uh, foreign exchange reserves in the excess of $100 billion with a B, and uh, we import, we export more than we import, meaning every month we add to our, to add, we add foreign currency to our bank account. Um, in the 80s, we had a staggering 400% annual rate of inflation. It was incredibly difficult. I mean, Israelis, we, we didn't have, we never had shekels, uh, the local currency, in our pockets. Because if you did, you actually, you virtually could feel the value slipping down your thigh. Uh, today the shekel is the strongest currency in the world. And finally, I remember, or maybe not finally, maybe I'll add two more glimpses. One of them is, I remember, I was already in the high-tech business, and... My company headquarters were, were located in an area of Tel Aviv that is called Ramat HaChayal, our Silicon Valley. And uh, one morning I woke up and I read in the news or I heard in the radio that an Israeli company, a neighbor of us in Ramat HaChayal, one of the companies that is neighbor to my company, uh, the name was Mirabilis and the product they produced, they uh, developed was ICQ, which was the first uh, instant messaging software in the world, was acquired by America Online by $400 million. And I said, uh, it can't be true. I mean, it can't be true that an American company pays $400 million for a, an Israeli company and even one of my neighbors. Today, $400 million, an acquisition of an Israeli company for $400 million doesn't make the news. Uh, actually, in 2017, last year, we shattered twice the, what I believe was the new glass selling, uh, the $10 billion mark for an Israeli company. Um, Intel Corporation acquired an Israeli company from Jerusalem named Mobileye in the business of uh, autonomous vehicles, car, driverless cars, not carless drivers, driverless cars, um, by $15.5 billion, the largest M&A, the largest market, market merger and acquisition that Intel ever made. Um, it was not the first uh, 
investment of Intel Corporation in Israel. They have plants in Israel. They have development, uh, manufacturing plants in Israel. Um, and, uh, but it was the largest. And the CEO, the president of Intel, came to Israel and told our prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu, he told you, him, you know, we in Intel see ourselves as an Israeli company no less than an American company. And the second acquisition a few months later was a company that I must admit I never heard its name before that. It was Kate Pharma, a, a company that is developing, a, trying to develop a cure for certain types of leukemia uh, for more than $10.5 billion. And I assume that if someone pays $10.5 million for a billion dollars, sorry, for a company that is developing a cure for leukemia, there is a good chance that the cure to leukemia will be found in Israel. Uh, the last uh, vignette is not a personal one. Is I, I heard it from the Prime Minister. And uh, Netanyahu always likes to tell that, uh, you know that uh, in the 50s, 60s, uh, we tried to do a crazy thing. We tried to develop an automotive industry to manufacture a car. And we opened a plant in northern Israel, um, and it actually manufactured the car. The brand was Susita. Um, it was a revolutionary concept. The body of the car was, from, was done of, from fiberglass. Um, Netanyahu likes to, the army, uh, Israeli army acquired a lot of Susitas. I myself drove a Susita, which is a very unpleasant experience. Uh, and uh, Netanyahu always likes to say that one time in the army he uh, rested his elbow on the susita, in the hood of the susita, and his elbow sank into the, the fiberglass. Um, it was a complete failure. And then he says, today Israel is one of the leaders of the automotive industry in the world. And people raise eyebrows. What do you mean we are one of the leaders of the automotive, industries of, in, automotive industry in the world? Israel does not manufacture cars. And then he explains that cars today, with all due respect to wheels and uh, uh, engines, the most important thing in a car today is the software. And that's what differentiates one car from the other. And the software is Israeli. In many, many European, American, Japanese, South Korean cars, the, the software is uh, uh, Israeli. So the Israeli economy was completely revolutionized by the innovation sector. And I say innovation, I don't say high-tech, because innovation is not necessarily high-tech. Uh, for instance, Israel is the second or third largest exporter of television formats of ideas for television programs. Nothing to do with ITEC, uh, but a lot to do with uh, innovation, with ingenuity. Um, we are today, we have, uh, we are, you know, we are barely uh, less than nine million people in Israel, uh, more or less the size both in geography and area and population more or less like New Jersey. And uh, we have uh, enemies uh, in our north and south boundaries, uh, Hezbollah and uh, Hamas. They have New York and Philadelphia. 
Um, so we are very similar to New Jersey. Um, and um, think about this, cybersecurity. People say that cybersecurity is the industry of the future. That's wrong. Cybersecurity is the industry of the present. If you know what is going to be the next cybersecurity, then you can become rich. But cybersecurity is already the, the present. And uh, 25%, between 20 or 25% of the investment in cybersecurity companies goes to Israeli companies. That means that we punch something like, I don't know, 500 times our weight. And that's just one example. Now, innovation by itself is not enough to revolutionize an economy. How do I, uh, how do I know that it's not enough? Because I know of a, a country that was extremely innovative. Maybe it had the most innovative minds in the world, and it went bankrupt. That country was called the Soviet Union. So we need, in addition to innovation, you need entrepreneurship. And in Israel today, every second man and young man or women, are, they are sure they're going to be the next uh, Bill Gates. And uh, we have a, just to give you a gl an idea of what the Israeli entrepreneurial uh, culture today uh, is, uh, every Eight hours, uh, a new startup company is registered in, in Israel. Uh, most of them fail, but that's okay. That's the industry. Uh, uh, those that succeed take the economy of the country to a completely different level. And uh, actually, when I say eight hours, every eight, each, every eight hours a new startup company is registered, that's misleading because uh, Actually, it's every two to three business, hour, business hours. Uh, that is a more relevant date. And uh, in addition to that, you know, we, we just celebrated Passover. Uh, we, for years, uh, tended to blame Moses that took us to Israel instead of taking us to Saudi Arabia with his huge oil reservoirs. <laughs> You know, just one turn it would have been in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it took us to a country completely devoid of any natural resources. And even that changed. And we discovered lately uh, some of the great, largest reservoirs of uh, maritime natural gas uh, that also obviously contribute a lot to our economy. We have economic challenges. We have social challenges. Uh, uh, our rate of... Uh, um, this equality grow is too large for a, a, a society that was always proud of its, of its cohesiveness. Um, that's because high-tech tends to remunerate those that are already more educated and more. We have challenges, that, but those are challenges that uh, are better than the challenges of poverty. Um, and then the second, the third thing that I said, the mil stronger than ever military, stronger than ever economically. And the third thing is uh, uh, sometimes uh, it may sound puzzling because we, so we hear a lot about boycotting Israel and uh, boycott uh, disinvestment and sanctions movement against Israel. 
But actually, Israel was never less isolated in the world than today, or to put it in positive terms, the diplomatic relations of Israel with the world, with the world were never better and more thriving. And I will take you to do a brief, uh, very brief uh, whirlwind tour of the world to, to explain that. First of all, I suggest to you a challenge when you go back home, take a globe and spin it and put your finger randomly in any place in the globe, it's, if it's not an ocean. And I must admit also certain Western European countries, your finger will be on a, on a country with which Israel improved dramatically its diplomatic relations, its bilateral relations in the last five to ten years. And to prove that, uh, again, I will not cover the whole globe, but I will give you a few examples. The first one, India. India did not have diplomatic relations with Israel at all 25 years ago. There was no Indian embassy in Israel, no Israeli embassy in India, no diplomatic relations with the lowest level of, of, of cooperation between two countries. Today, the relation between Israel and India cannot be defined by any other word but intimate. Um, our presidents had mutual visits, and more important, our prime ministers had mutual visits. Prime Minister Modi in Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu in India, uh, all of these in the last uh, 12 months. Um, the deals are in the billions and billions of dollars, uh, agriculture, high-tech, uh, also military. Um, you know, when I, I don't remember a visit like, like this, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to Israel. Uh, at some stage, the, the, the friendship that he displayed, both to Israel and to Netanyahu himself, became embarrassing. Uh, they went, uh, and Netanyahu took Modi to a desalination plant in the Mediterranean. You know that Israel completely solved its water problems that were chronic problems that we have by desalination and recycling. Uh, so he took it to a desalination plant in, near the city of Hadera uh, in central Israel, and uh, suddenly they, the both guys, middle-aged guys, or quite old guys actually, uh, took their shoes off and their socks off and went hand-to-hand -hand into the Mediterranean towards the sunset. Uh, to the extent that uh, my first thought was, guys, take a room. <laughs> um, and then China. I cannot say that we, with China we have the same kind of intimate relation that we have, political relation that we have with uh, India. Uh, but uh, economically wise, we certainly do. Um, you know, one of the things that make me proudest to represent Israel in New York is the fact that we recent, a year ago or something like that, we opened here in Roosevelt Island a joint campus of uh, Cornell University and Israel's Technion. Uh, really a, a reason to be extremely proud. One of the flag projects of New York, Israel is involved in it. But the largest campus that the Technion has outside Israel is not Roosevelt Island, it's in China. On the other hand, um, when you visit Israel, uh, if, and if you didn't, you must, um, the most iconic item in the famous Israeli breakfast 
is uh, something that is called Tnuva cottage cheese. Actually, today it's Chinese because Tnuva was acquired by a Chinese company paying hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Japan Prime Minister Abe said in his visit to Israel that an incredible figure. I, 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 it was hard to believe that it's true, but if he said that, he said that in the last five years, Japanese investment in Israel grew 20 times, 20 times in five years, and so on and so on. We have an, an amazing Hellenic alliance with Greece and Cyprus. Think about it. The guy from Greece, Tsipras, is a staunch socialist. And Netanyahu is anything but socialist. Nevertheless, the three countries, Israel, Cyprus, and the three leaders, Israel, Cyprus, and, 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 and Greece, meet every three months. Uh, amazing cooperation on many, on many fields. That's right, we have a common neighbor we don't like so much, it's called Turkey. Um, but even with Turkey, you know what, even with Turkey, uh, we reopened our embassies, at least we brought our relationship from sub-zero to zero, something. Um, the Gulf states, uh, we can't talk about it, but the cooperation with the Gulf states is incredible. Uh, it doesn't it's not reflected yet in diplomacy, in open diplomacy, Saudi Arabia and others, but uh, in South America, Netanyahu just visited. We had two ladies that uh, didn't like us to say an understatement, uh, Rousseff in Brazil uh, and Kirchner in Argentina. Today they were replaced by Temer in Brazil and Macri in Argentina with our extremely friendly to Israel. Uh, Netanyahu visited for the first time, uh, a prime, an Israeli prime minister visited Argentina, Brazil, uh, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, and he will visit Brazil, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to say a word about Africa. Our relationship with Africa for me is the most, I don't, I don't think it's the most important geopolitically, but or strategically, but I think it's the most it's so significant. Our relations with Africa were uh, stormy. In the, la in the first days of Israel, Israel was created, as I said, in 1948. In the, let's say, 50s, late 50s, early 60s, when Golda Meir was uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, she had a very strong African policy of assisting the nascent nations of Africa, Ghana, Congo, Uganda, Kenya, etc., etc. Uh, and then uh, came the Yom Kippur War, uh, you already mentioned it, at the oil embargo. And to put it uh, bluntly, we were kicked out of Africa by Saudi Arabia and Libya and others that pressured the, the Africans. Uh, we were kicked out from Africa. We maintained diplomatic relations only with two African countries, not very important countries, Swaziland and Malawi. Today, Israel is returning to Africa, and Africa is returning to Israel in an unprecedented way. Uh, Netanyahu visited uh, the last 18, 18 months, uh, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Kenya twice, uh, um, Uganda, Togo, uh, Liberia, uh, and uh, African leaders come, come uh, all the time to, 
to Israel. Um, I sent, uh, here as Consul General of Israel from New York, I sent a delegation of uh, African-American journalists to Ghana with, our, with my spokesperson uh, to show them what we do in, in Ghana in, the, in this case. And the thing I, I loved most of their, what they wrote after the, the return from Ghana was that uh, one guy told them in Ghana that uh, the French help give assistance to Ghana, but they make sure that Ghana remains dependent on that assistance. The moment the French, if the French leave, they don't know what to do. You guys, he said, you train us and then we become independent, autonomous, and I think that's remarkable. And the last thing I, can, I will say, and I'm extremely proud of, is, uh, is what we do in humanitarian side in, in Syria. Syria is an enemy country, is an enemy country. Nevertheless, as we speak now, uh, young Israelis, uh, men and women, with uniform and without uniform, are inside Syria extending humanitarian assistance. Food, medicines, construction materials, etc., etc., endangering their lives. And as far as I know, we are the only country in the world that does it. There are countries that assist refugees from Syria. But I don't know of any country, except the UN, that uh, 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 extends humanitarian aid to Syrian civilians inside Syria. We also bring them to our hospitals for treatment, children, men, women, without asking questions. And then I want to conclude with, uh, with the serious challenge we have. For many, many decades, we knew that our strategic challenge are our bordering countries. We knew that we have a conflict with Egypt, with Jordan, with Syria, with Lebanon, and that is our strategic concern. Um, that com changed completely. With Egypt, we have a peace treaty, a robust peace treaty, that even survived a period of uh, Muslim Brotherhood government in Cairo. Uh, with Jordan, we have a peace treaty which is uh, robust as ever. And uh, yes, we have concerns in Syria and Lebanon, but they have nothing to do with Syria and Lebanon. Actually, Israel's strategic challenge today is one and only, and it's called Iran. And it's a multi multifacetic challenge that uh, I must uh, be sincere uh, concerns us a lot. It has at least four manifestations. The first one is the attempt by Iran, the clear attempt to acquire military nuclear capabilities. It's no secret that we were opposed to the JCPOA, to the nuclear agreement with Iran, on many grounds, moral grounds, and we thought that appeasing uh, an anti-Semitic, uh, genocidal regime is wrong, moral counts. To welcome them into the family of nations and to business with it is wrong morally. That's, the re that's for me the, the significance of never again. But also on practical grounds, uh, the, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's an agreement that has an expiration date. It's an agreement that we don't 
I think that the, the inspections are completely unreliable, etc., etc. And I will tell, I would like to tell you the following: If we, if we will inherit to our children and grandchildren a world with a nuclear axis from Pyongyang to Tehran, that means that we will inherit to our children and grandchildren a world much, much worse and much more dangerous than the world in which many of us grew during the Cold War. Much worse, much unpredictable. And I hope that uh, the world and this country will find a way to change that. Uh, the second thing is Iran is the largest promoter of uh, terrorism all over the world. Uh, instability. Iran is building an empire. Believe it or not, what we said that they will use the hundreds of millions of dollars, the hundreds of the billions, many billions of dollars that they received to build an empire, and an empire of evil is exactly what is happening. And they have one tentacle in the north that goes from Iran to, through Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon to the Mediterranean, and one in the south that for the time being includes only Yemen, but who knows what will happen in the future. And that is a great danger to stability, to world peace. We already know of a country that had a, a, a fundamentalist regime with a crazy leader, and we pay a dear price for it in, in, in the World War II. The third thing that uh, concerns us regarding Iran is the, the attempt of Iran to create a stronghold in Syria. It's already created it. We have to now to deal with the fact that it already created it. Um, a very good development the defeat of ISIS created a very um, challenging situation in which Iran is filling that vacuum. And uh, we are determined to prevent that. We cannot allow Iran to sit on our board. And we do what we have to do in order to prevent that. Sometimes it shows in the headlines and sometimes it doesn't. And the last thing is Lebanon. But again, Lebanon is not an independent country today. Lebanon, the, the largest military power in Lebanon is not Lebanon, is not led by Lebanon, is not dominated by Lebanon, but it's Hezbollah that is dominated. It's completely an Iranian proxy. It's not a pleasant uh, feeling when you know that your country is being targeted by 100,000 missiles. Um, that the order whether to shoot them or not is given in by some Ayatollah in Tehran. But that's the situation. Um, thank God we managed to deter Iran from using them to this point. We don't know what the future has for us. Um, I think that one of the things that will change if they decide to use them is uh, the fate of Lebanon. Uh, it's completely, now that uh, the, the Lebanese army is actually a subcontractor of Hezbollah, uh, uh, or Hezbollah is the southern command of the Lebanese army, uh, Lebanon has to have agency. 
And it's impossible that the world would keep seeing Lebanon as this cute French mademoiselle that has no control over her life. It's a country, it's a sovereign country, and it should have control over its life. And if we are attacked from Lebanon, and we hope we will not, but if we are attacked from Lebanon, we have dire consequences towards that country that is called today Lebanon. Uh, and I didn't say a word about the Palestinians. And I will conclude by that. Um, look, I I'm not optimistic. Okay, uh, regarding the prospects of a, peace, of a peace agreement with the Palestinians. And I will tell you why. People say that uh, this is the major obstacle for peace, that is the major obstacle for peace. Uh, someone, sometimes they border, sometimes they Jerusalem, sometimes they say settlement, sometimes they say refugees. I beg to disagree. I believe that all those issues that are called in the diplomatic jargon the core issues of the conflict, namely, as I said, security, boundaries, uh, Jerusalem, settlements, refugees, and maybe something else, those are technicalities. They are difficult to solve, but uh, they can be solved. I will not say in five minutes, but I will say in in five months or in a year and a half. There is an, uh, that, that is not the problem of the conflict. The problem of the conflict, in my view, is the following. We Israelis recognize, most of us, we are not monolithic. We are a democratic country, you know, two, two Jews, three positions, with, uh, nine million Israelis, uh, infinite positions. But, uh, Nevertheless, uh, most of us, uh, including our Prime Minister, uh, uh, now came to the conclusion that there are two indigenous people to the land that we call Eretz Israel and they call Palestine, the land of Israel and Palestine, and we have to make a compromise. Unfortunately, that is not the Palestinian position. Again, of the majority, of the of the four political forces in the Palestinian camp. Um, there are, the moderates say Israel is strong, therefore we have to agree to their presence. The extremists say not even that. But no serious Palestinian political force accepts the right of Israel, the justification of Israel to exist. How do I know that? Because they say it explicitly. Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, said uh, two months ago, Israel is a colonialist European power in the Middle East. Now, you don't compromise with the colonialists. The maximum you do is an armistice until you are strong enough to violate the, the, the agreement and, and correct the injustice. Look, I had a, an amazing experience, personal one. I was here, not far from here, in Parkes Synagogue in Manhattan a year ago in Jan January 2017. There was a commemoration of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and the keynote speaker was the then newly elected Secretary General of the UN, Mr. Antonio Guterres from Portugal. And Secretary General Guterres said the following, and I quote exactly. 
Quote, the temple that was destroyed in Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70 BC was a Jewish one, unquote. No political conclusion, no therefore, no nothing. Just a well-known political fa uh, historical fact. The following day, the Palestinian envoy to the UN presented a strong protest. He demanded the Secretary General to retract his statement, and he said it's offensive to the Palestinian people. Meaning, the, the, the notion that we belong, we Jews belong to the land of Israel, Palestine, is offensive, that's not the way you can achieve peace. In order to achieve peace, you need two sides that agree that it is just to reach a compromise. Otherwise, it's in the best case, is a, a truce, a ceasefire, not a peace treaty. And that's the reason I always say that the most important person in the peace process uh, between us and the Palestinians is not the President of the United States or the Secretary General of the UN or the Prime Minister of Israel, and not even the President of the Palestinian Authority. I think that the most important person in the peace process is the Minister of Education of the Palestinian Authority. And they will start to educate that we, not exclusively, no, definitely not exclusively, that we also, that history created a situation in which there are two indigenous people to the same land, Jews and Palestinians. That day the peace process will start. And then I believe that what I call technicalities, maybe a little bit exaggerating, will be solved. You will be amazed, amazed if we live to see the day that that happens. You will be amazed how forthcoming Israelis, we Israelis, will be in a negotiation that is based on the acknowledgement that we belong. Uh, if you ask me if I am optimistic that it will happen in the near future, unfortunately I see the Palestinians going in exactly the opposite direction, distancing themselves from uh, uh, recognition of uh, Jews as indigenous to the land. To sum up, uh, Israel, uh, David Ben-Gurion, our first prime minister, once said that uh, to be a realist in Israel, you have to believe in miracles. And uh, he was right. I think that we what we achieved, the fact that we established our state and we managed to defend it uh, with, a, you know, with an army of uh, volunteers, uh, of amateurs. Uh, and then we, we, are, we, we managed to embrace hundreds, more than one million Jews from, West, from Eastern Europe, from the ashes of the Holocaust, and from uh, uh, Arab countries. And we created a democracy that, uh, don't take it for granted, of course we have deficiencies. Our democracy is not uh, perfect. No democracy is perfect. I heard there is a democracy in which there is a thing called electoral college. Uh, so also our democracy is not, uh, is not perfect. Um, but the, it was established under war by two groups of persons that were completely devoid of any 
democratic legacy. Jews from Eastern Europe, Jews from the Middle East. They didn't know what they knew what the king is, what the tsar is. They didn't know what the parliament is. Nevertheless, they built a, a thriving democracy, a vibrant democracy. Some would say too vibrant, uh, uh, too fragmented for sure. Uh, and then we defended our improbable borders, and we reunited our capital, Jerusalem, and we managed to liberate and embrace a million Jews from the former Soviet Union and tens of thousands from Ethiopia. And then we became an incredible technological superpower. Yes, we enter uh, our eighth decade of existence with great, great pride with great, great optimism, and with realism that we have challenges that we have to confront. Thank you so much. And I will be glad if... Thank you, Ambassador. Would you take some questions? Of course. I will be glad to. Look, uh, I think you defined it uh, uh, very well. It's a very delicate situation in which you, in which you, have, to, you have to be very cool-headed and not uh, miscalculate. Um, there are many. I don't want to weigh in uh, my personal opinion. But, for instance, there are many that say that the 2000 confrontation we had with Hezbollah in Lebanon was a, a mutual miscalculation. Hezbollah kidnapped... Uh, uh, two Israeli soldiers, which for us is uh, a red line, and uh, we, they didn't intend to, they didn't, Nasrallah, the, the, the leader of Hezbollah, said explicitly that if he would, would have known that that will ignite the war, he wouldn't have done that. And maybe we also shouldn't have reacted, you know, uh, we should have, could have waited a little bit to see exactly how it develops, and it developed into a a, a, a full-fledged confrontation or, or war. So things like that in the Middle East can happen. Um, and it's uh, for sure a matter of concern. You know that uh, for ten, almost 10 years we didn't uh, acknowledge the fact that we destroyed the Syrian nuclear reactor, a nuclear facility. Um, but today we can say that the day that we did it, we discovered that uh, the Syrians with the North Korean assistance are developing nuclear capabilities and we decided to act because President George W. Bush decided not to act. That's okay, we have no complaints about that. Uh, um, 
the when we did it, uh, all our fighters, all our uh, jet uh, fighters, all our war aircraft, they were with pilots in their cockpits, awaiting a retaliation and maybe a war. So uh, it's a, definitely a tricky situation. Uh, we have, uh, you know, I said that our immediate uh, neighbors are not a matter of concern, but that is somewhat misleading. Uh, in, 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 in Egypt, for instance, we had very, very strong relationship today with the, with the government in Egypt, but let's not forgive, forget that in the Sinai Peninsula, that is the area that buffers between us and uh, what I would call uh, mainland Egypt, uh, it swarms with ISIS. Uh, ISIS that is engaged with the Egyptian government and not with Israel, but that can change in a minute. Uh, Jordan, uh, again, is a, is, a, is a partner, but uh, how fragile the Jordanian regime is today, that's a big question. Jordan has a huge influx of refugees that put a tremendous burden on its, on its economy, and who knows? Uh, on the other hand, I say, you know, uh, the fragility of the Jordanian dynasty is the strongest thing that I remember. It's the most stable thing in the Middle East. For 50 years, it's a, for seven, 60 years, it's a fragile dynasty, and it still exists, so who knows? And yes, we had, uh, look, I remember the day when uh, uh, the, Syria, the Russians intervened for the first time in, in Syria. Uh, and, you know, Israel didn't intervene in the, in the civil war in Syria, uh, except for humanitarian assistance. But yes, we did have a, a, a red line uh, that we were very strict uh, in, 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 in keeping it, and it was to prevent uh, smuggling arms from Syria to Lebanon. And uh, every time we, need, we had intelligence that uh, they are trying to do it, we, we attacked. And suddenly the Russians come, and in the very small patch of airspace, we are fly, flying in contradicting goals because they are allied with Assad and with Iran, and we are against them in, in the issue of smuggling armaments to Lebanon. And uh, I remember that uh, Netanyahu made a decision that very day. He didn't wait 24 hours. He called Putin and said, I want to come to Moscow. And the following day, he was in Moscow. And I remember people saying, Netanyahu goes hysterical again. And actually, it was a brilliant decision because uh, he made with Putin tactical arrangements, including a red line and things like that between the air forces, that prevented catastrophe. We continued to do our job. They continued to do their job in a very, very small uh, patch of airspace with no, uh, no Collusions is not the right word, I think. <laughs> with no uh, collisions, with no uh, uh, in incidents, uh, and at least till, till this day. But uh, yes, it's extremely delicate, extremely delicate. Look, to be Prime Minister of Israel, 
uh, Arik Sharon, Ariel Sharon once say about, about himself, who, whoever wants to be Prime Minister of Israel, he deserves it. UN uh, Relief Agency, I don't know exactly what the acronym is. Uh, the, the Palestinians are uh, uh, the only people that have a, a, a dedicated UN agency that instead of uh, helping to resettle and to solve refugee problems, uh, the purpose of the agency is to perpetuate the refugee status. Actually, when we speak about Palestinian refugees, they are fifth-generation descendants of refugees. They are not refugees themselves. But the UN decided that the Palestinians are a special case and their status should be perpetuated. The, the refugee status is inherited. Uh, and that's one of the core issues of the conflict uh, that will make a resolution maybe the most difficult to resolve because uh, uh, if uh, the Palestinian idea is that we'll have two states, one that it will be exclusively Palestinian and the other that will be Jewish and Palestinian 50-50, that's not our idea of a peace treaty. And maybe uh, they mean more than that. They mean two Palestinian states that will be, make peace among themselves. That obviously is completely unacceptable for us. Um, so uh, there are other voices that say which had cut completely the fund for UNRWA, mainly in this country more than in Israel, um, in the administration, uh, Ambassador Haley also. Uh, it's uh, not so easy. Uh, there are people that now have, it had to be a gradual process, but no doubt that the ultimate solution is a resettlement of refugees in the places in which they reside today. And the UNRWA is a, a negative factor in that process. Okay. Uh, we believe, uh, well, we believe that it was a mistake, the Iranian deal. Uh, I already spoke about it. Um, we hope the, bill, the deal can be fixed. And there are three, um, three clauses, three uh, topics in which we feel that there is an urgent need to, to fix the agreement. The first one is what is called in the diplomatic jargon the, the sunset clause, meaning an expiration date. The agreement has an expiration date. It will come and some issues on 80 years, 80 years from now, others 10 years from now. But that means that even if uh, Iran complies with the agreement, in 10 years it will be free to walk into developing they, since they continue with their R&D, with their research and development, they will be able to walk into nuclear capabilities without violating the agreement. For that, for us, as I said, it's totally unacceptable. By the way, not only for us. We may be the spokespersons of that position, but believe me, the Saudis 
and the other Gulf states are even more terrified than Israel, and I think also Europe and the United States have a reason to be extremely concerned, as I said, about the nuclear axis that can be created from Pyongyang to Tehran. Uh, that is one. The second thing, we think the, the inspections are a joke. Uh, the inspection regime is a joke. Uh, you need early warning. Uh, the Iranians know where to hide, what they have to hide. But more than that, the military, uh, military sites are exempt from inspections. Now, where do you have uh, nuclear capabilities if not in military sites? So if military sites are exempt from inspections, that is absurd. That is a joke. And the third thing, uh, we, th I, we believe that the whole issue of uh, missiles development has to be included in the agreement. Uh, Iran is uh, uh, carrying out an ambitious project of developing attack missiles, some of them intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles. Let me uh, remind you that intercontinental ballistic missiles are not for Israel, are for you. Uh, we are in the same continent. They don't need intercontinental ballistic missiles. They need to threaten Europe. They need to threaten the U.S. And uh, those are the three main points that we think should be fixed. We believe that uh, if the United States will uh, announce on May 12th or beforehand that it's either uh, fix it or nix it, uh, Either you do the necessary changes of uh, United States uh, withdraws from the agreement and impose the sanctions and tells the world you have to decide if you want to do business with our multi-trillion economy or with the Iranian economy. Uh, the world will choose to do business with the United States and Iran will have to comply with the, with the uh, new situation and, and, and come be forthcoming in, in amending the agreement. I must admit that it would have been better uh, not to sign the agreement first hand. Now it's, uh, there are no good alternatives. It's uh, choosing between bad alternatives. What is your prediction in terms of the conflict between the Saudis and Iran for all practical purposes playing out down the road? That's the bigger picture of what's playing out right well, you know, Iran, uh, 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 Saudis are engaged in a confrontation with Iran, actually, in Yemen. Uh, uh, rock missiles are being uh, uh, launched from Yemen to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, uh, I'm not naive. I know that the new friendship between the Gulf states and Israel is not just that because they started to look, to, to like our beautiful eyes, uh, is a common adversary, is Iran. I think that uh, when the Saudis uh, understood that uh, the U.S. sees uh, Iran as part of the solution, as not part of the problem, as they and us see it, uh, they had several options uh, to find an ally. One option was to learn uh, Chinese. Uh, it's difficult for, you know, an hereditary absolute monarchy to, to, for, to, forge, to, to forge an alliance with China. Uh, Russia was not an option because Russia was allied with Iran, 
Iran. He's allied with Iran. So they started to learn Hebrew. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that uh, the Saudis and the Gulf states have a great territory, many reasons to be concerned. Again, with, uh, when you look at the map, take a look at home at the map and color in black or in whatever uh, uh, color you like, uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and then Yemen, you will see exactly what the expansionist design of Iran is. And it will not stop in Yemen. Uh, it will not stop in Yemen, and uh, it will continue, and uh, it threatened threaten, uh, 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 very significantly uh, the Saudis. Um, we have in Saudi uh, a, new, a new guy in town, the so-called MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, 30-something year old old guy. He just toured this country, meeting everyone from Oprah Winfrey to the Jewish leadership. Um, and Jeff Bezos and uh, you name it. Uh, obviously the president. Uh, he's a revolutionary. At least in Saudi terms, you know, uh, you have to understand where they start from. Uh, he, the, he already made some changes. Uh, I can only wish him luck. Uh, and I hope he, he is not too ambitious. And, uh, but I think he's doing uh, important things to modernize, to, 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 to make Saudi more, to bring Saudi Arabia, I don't know, if, uh, I'm not sure to the 21st century, but at least to the 19th. <laughs> yeah. Could you tell us what's happening along the fence in Gaza? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, look, uh, uh, Gaza, uh, Gaza was, uh, Israel withdrew from Gaza completely. In the, in the summer of 2005, we took every every civilian, every military presence, uh, even we took our dead from the graves, because we knew they would be desecrated the moment we leave. Um, and Gazans were given uh, a, an opportunity that is seldom given to a group of persons. Gaza was given the, Gazans were given the opportunity to choose whether they want to be a Middle Eastern Singapore or a Middle Eastern Somalia or Afghanistan. And if they would have decided they want to be a Middle Eastern Singapore, Israel would have led the world in uh, 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 assisting Gaza to become a, a heaven. Uh, uh, but they decided, they made a decision that they prefer to continue to wage war with Israel. And therefore, uh, the generals, the billions and billions of dollars and yens and pounds and euros and you name it, that were contributed to Gaza, were used for armaments, for, for, for missiles, instead of hospitals and, uh, and schools and uh, uh, roads. Now, uh, just think about it. The tunnels, the tunnels, the infiltrating tunnels inside Israel that the Gazans dig incessantly, according to our calculation, they costed something around between 300 and 500 million dollars. 
Imagine if instead of digging tunnels, they would have paved roads or built schools or hospitals in $500 million. Now, a situation like that is, first of all, is very problematic for Israel, but it's also unsustainable for the Gazans. You cannot sustain an economy that you invest only in armaments, only in, in, in tunnels. Uh, so the situation in Gaza is indeed uh, difficult. And instead of solving it, they prefer to, to incite against Israel and to, to have mass demonstrations and trying to infiltrate Israel and to topple the fence that borders between us and Gaza. And uh, Hamas is the, the, the one that stands behind it. There are some cases in which actually they make under the the smoke screen that the ties create attempts to attack our civilians and our soldiers. Look, we know, we know exactly what was the design. The design before we discussed that to discover the tunnels was to start a war in which the first action of the war will be a massive influx of terrorist soldiers, call them the, the weather way you know, with motorcycles in the through the tunnels inside Israel to reach the city of Sderot that is one mile, two miles from the border, to take hostages. And then even if, you know, they, they com to create complete chaos until the forces arrive, to kill as many as they can, to, to take uh, buildings, schools, all that. And uh, then it doesn't matter what happened later. For them, they won the, the war. An attack like that means they won the war with Israel. And uh, now we, we thwarted that, and we start, we developed uh, technology to, to detect the tunnels and to destroy them. Uh, and uh, so instead of, uh, the, the easiest thing to do is to incite the population against Israel, to tell them, let's every Friday uh, demonstrate uh, against this and against that. And we have to, Take precautions, uh, and that, that's what happens. One last question. In the context of these demonstrations at the border of Gaza, we've been hearing, at least from the reports I've read, it, it sounds as though we hear more here than other places. Uh, the Palestinians speak about the right of return. Can you speak to that about what does that possibly mean for the yeah. Well, that's a link to the question about UNRWA. Look, right of return means the end of Israel. Uh, right of return means that uh, the five gen fifth generation, sixth generation of original refugees will be resettled inside Israel. Meaning that you will have a two-state solution, one Palestinian state exclusively Palestinian with no Jewish presence, and alongside will make peace with the Palestinian state, with the Palestinian majority and a Jewish minority. Well, that's a non-starter, okay? That's a non-starter. Uh, the, 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 the Palestinian refugee issue should be resolved in the Palestinian state or in the places in which they reside. This is also the American position. That is the position of any sensible person. Uh, to do a peace between two Palestinian states, really, that really is not difficult. But uh, maybe it's difficult, actually, because uh, uh, there the are different factions there. But that's not, uh, that's a non-stop. Uh, uh, thank you so much. Thank you